The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 429. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all the social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll. 10 Myths of American History. You get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. I've got a course out right now, a new class. If you're ever at McClanahan Academy, you already knew about it. My Originalist Paper series has got part two out now, so it's a great class. You're going to want to get part one and part two. Three and four are coming out in the next few months. I'm going to roll those out. So you're going to want to get these. This is a way to really grasp what the Constitution is all about. It's what we need to do if we're going to start winning arguments. Not just using phrases like, we've got a republic, not a, a, a representative republic, not a democracy, and things like that. I mean, you got to know what you're talking about, right? So get originalist papers, but I've got a whole lot of other classes there that'll get you on board with that, too. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on, help keep the podcast going. Get my book plates there if you want my autograph on one of my books. Get one of my books, Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution, Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers. Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes, Southern Scribblings, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, Forgotten Conservatives in American History. I mean, I've got a lot of stuff out there, so you're going to want to get all those books, too. And I do have some others coming out this year, so watch for those. If you're on my email list, you'll get that, too. And, of course, share this podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're listening to this podcast. You're thinking locally and acting locally. You're doing all you can to get people interested in these ideas. And today, we're going to talk about some ideas. This is going back to principles, right? So every now and then, I like to pull out a podcast and do these things. Last couple of episodes have been listener-generated episodes. This, though, has to do with something that's happening even right now. Now, this essay was written in 1960, and it's by Richard Weaver. If you're a someone on the right, you probably have heard of Richard Weaver before. You may not know much about him, but you've heard of him. He was, uh, in many ways, one of the intellectual grandfathers of modern paleoconservatism. But this essay is, a, is about something bigger than that. What you're seeing right now on the libertarian side of things is a civil war between the left libertarians and right libertarians. If you follow Lou Rockwell or Tom Woods, you're seeing that this is going on quite a bit. Some of the other right libertarians. There's an, an attempt by... Though right, the right libertarians have tried to take back the libertarian party. And then on the conservative side, you've got the paleocons and the neocons. This has been going on for years, for 40 years plus. The effort of the paleocons to try to push back against the neocons. The neocons are ascendant. They're the ones that control all the major think tanks. They are the establishment. These are the ones that sabotage Trump, the Trump administration. The neocons are a real problem. So the question is, who are the real libertarians and who are the real conservatives? Are the left libertarians the real libertarians? Are the 
neocons the real conservatives, or are the right libertarians and the paleocons, respectively, the real libertarians and conservatives? And I had a prominent libertarian email me uh, a while back saying, hey, you'd like to talk about a fusion so many ways, or talk about this alliance between right libertarians and right conser- traditional conservatives, paleocons, and pushing that forward again. Because this is what Murray Rothbard represented in many ways. I mean, Murray Rothbard recognized that paleoconservatives had a lot in common with right libertarians. Why? And this essay I'm going to read by Richard Weaver gets into that, the why. The title of it is Conservatism and Libertarianism, The Common Ground. The Common Ground. An important essay. This is in his collection of essays in defense of tradition. So he begins, The subject of this paper is the common ground between conservatism and libertarianism, not the possible common ground, but the common ground. For I am convinced that they are already or naturally share the same place on the political arc even though sometimes they are found eyeing one another rather uneasily. And this does happen, right? Among the theorists in both groups, it is true, we sometimes sense an unwillingness to come into a common front, apparently out of a feeling that this would require some fatal concessions. I hope to show this is not so. It can be demonstrated that while the positions of the conservative and of that of the libertarian may not overlap in exactly, they do have an overlapping, and they certainly are not in necessary conflict. So while there are some things we can maybe disagree on, libertarians, conservatives, you know, in those groups, and people have asked me what I am. I mean, I don't really label myself. I call myself an American traditionalist. You can call me whatever you want. I'm often lumped in with the paleocons. Sometimes I'm lumped in with the right libertarians. It doesn't really matter to me because I think those, those titles are sometimes misleading. I'm an American traditionalist. I believe in the traditional institutions of the United States, which comes down to the core. One of the core things, of course, is federalism. I could say I'm a Jeffersonian. I'm an old Republican. These are things I support. The modifier which has been most frequently applied to my own writings is conservative, and that is Weaver. I have not exactly courted this, but I certainly have not resented it. And if I had to make a choice among the various applications that are available, this is very likely the one that I would wind up with. I must say that I do not see any harm in it, and I am unable, I'm sorry, unlike some of my friends, unlike some people whom I agree on principles, but who appear to think that the term is loaded with unfavorable meanings or at least connections. He doesn't agree with that. There, and there is, in fact, a concept of conservatism filled with the with this disparagement which needs to be fought by everyone who believes that a conservative philosophy that a conservative philosophy <laughs> is useful and constructive. So he says, we need to fight this. You know, people that say it's uh, this disparagement, we need to fight that disparagement. There are some people who appear to think that conservatism means simply lack of imagination. The conservative, unable to visualize anything else, just wants to sit down with the status quo. There are others who seem to think that conservatism means timidity. The conservative is a person who has a sneaking presentment that things might be better, but he is simply afraid to take the risk of improvement. There are some who seem to think that conservatism is a product of temperamental slowness. If your mind or reflexes don't work as fast as other people's, then you must be a conservative. In these conceptions, the conservative is always found behind, whether from mental or physical deficiency, 
or just plain fearfulness. Naturally, nobody looks at that kind of person for leadership. But this is very far from my image of the conservative. A conservative, in my view, is a man who may be behind the times or up with the times or ahead of the times. It all depends on how you define the times. And this, is, this brings us at once to the matter of an essential definition. And this is where he defines conservatism. Now remember, in a previous episode, I talked about John C. Calhoun's definition of conservative, and Weaver actually brings up Calhoun later in this essay. He says, It is my contention that a conservative is a realist who believes that there is a structure of reality independent of his own will and desire. He believes that there is a creation which was here before him, which exists now not just by his sufferance, and which will be here after he's gone. This structure consists not merely of the great physical world, but of also of many laws, principles, and regulations which control human behavior. Though this reality is independent of the individual, it is not hostile to him. It is, in fact, amenable by him in many ways, but it cannot be changed radically and arbitrarily. This is the cardinal point. The conservative holds that men in this world cannot make his will his law, without any regard to limits, and to the fixed nature of things. Now, that is a beautiful definition of conservative. I think one of the best, I mean, Calhoun had a good one too. This is one of the best, though. And so, that last part. The conservative holds that man in this world cannot make his will his law, without any regard to limits, and to the fixed nature of things. So, in other words, it's an absence of ideology. You can't make your will your law without changing the structure of things. And this is exactly what the left wants to do. They want to change the structure of things. Conservatives say you can't do that. You can't change the structure. There are things, a structure of reality independent of his own will and desire. There is a reality independent of what you want and what you desire. And you can't change that. It's nature. In other words, conservatives believe in nature, the nature of things. So I love that definition, and I think this is what fits a lot of Americans. Americans are naturally conservative. They see things as human. I mean, this is an apple. We're going to call it an apple. And, of course, we could be talking about some other things with this, but this is an apple. We're going to call it an apple because an apple is an apple. We're not going to call it an orange because we want to. Nature has said this is an apple. This is what it is. We're not going to call these things or that thing something else because you say it is. We're not going to call... Income, infrastructure. We're not going to do it. We're not going to tear down centuries of nature, human nature, just because we want to change it because our will says so. You see, the left is a bulldozer. This is what they want to do. Whereas conservatives, this is this is what it is. And I think right libertarians have that same thing in common, and Weaver's going to get into that. There is, an, in, the, in the Elizabethan literature, a famous poem entitled A Mirror for Magistrates. It contains stories of a large number of rulers, kings, princes, and others who got into trouble and came to untimely and tragic ends. This story, from these that I remember with special vividness, concludes with this observation as a moral. And it is a kind of refrain line throughout the account. He made his will the law. His, his law. I'm sorry. He made his will his law. And that stayed with me as a kind of description of the radical. He makes... His will, the law, instead of following the rules of justice and prudence. Fancying that his dream or wish can be substituted for the great world of reality, he gets him to a fix from from which some good conservative has to rescue him. 
The conservative I therefore see as standing on terra firma of antecedent reality. Having accepted some things as given, lasting, and good, he is in a position to use his effort where effort will produce solid results. So the, the radical, as he said, he makes his will the law instead of following the rules of justice and prudence. His will becomes the law. Radicals and liberals sometimes try to knock the conservative off balance by asking, what do you want to conserve anyhow? I regard this question as now, by now substantially answered. The conservative wants to conserve the great structural reality which has been given us and which is on the whole beneficent. I might make this a little more precise by saying he wants to respect it, although, the, of course, respect must carry with it the idea of conserving. There is a famous saying of Francis Bacon which can be applied with meaning here. Bacon does not seem the most likely figure to be brought into a defense of conservatism, but then every great thinker will say some things of general truth. Bacon declared that man learns to command nature by obeying her. You can learn to command nature by obeying nature. The same holds for the moral, social, and political worlds. One does not command these things by simply trick, uh, trying to kick them over. One commands them as far as it is possible to do so or appropriate to do so by obeying them, by taking due note of their laws and regulations, by following these, and then proceeds, proceeding to further ends. Of course, the conservatives not accept everything that is both that is as both right and unchangeable. This is contrary to the very law of life, but the changes that he makes are regardful of the forms that antedate, overarch, and include him. The progress that he makes, therefore, is not something that will be undone as soon as his back is turned. The attitude of the radical toward the real order is contemptuous, not to say contradicting. It is very much a very pervasive idea in radical thinking that nothing can be superior to man. This accounts, of course, for his usual indifference or hostility toward religion, and it accounts also for his impatience with existing human institutions. His attitude is that anything man wants, he can both he both can and shall have, and impediments in the way are regarded as either accidents or affronts. So think about you know the modern left and what they're doing, the bulldozing nature of the left. Tear down the statues, tear down social orders, tear down social distinctions, tear down social tear down everything. Everything that's been built over time, tear it all down and say that it's an accident or affront to re, to what they want. Tear it all down. Destroy it. Because this is what the left has to do to get their way. They've got to change the fundamental structures. What the communists were doing in, in the Soviet Union, the Leninists were changing the entire structure of society because they couldn't keep anything traditional. By keeping anything traditional, you're destroying what they want, which is to make their will their law. This is, you know, we, we are run by, governed by men, not by laws. This is what we're talking about here. This is very easy to show from the language he habitually uses. He is a great scorner of the past and is always living in or for the future. A great scorner of the past. Think about the 1619 Project. Think about the 1776 Commission Report, which was a scorner of the past in some ways. A certain past, but not all the past. Only the past they liked. They could, but you're a scorner of the past and is always living in or for the future. You scorn the past. 
Now, since the future can never be anything more than one subjective projection, and since he affirmed that he believes only in the future, we are quite justified in saying that the radical lives in a world of fancy. Whatever of the present does not accord with his notions, he classifies as belonging to the past, and this will be done away with as soon as he and his party can get around to it. Whereas the conservative takes his lesson from the past that has objectified itself, the radical takes his his from cues out of the future that is really the product of wishful thinking. As a general, I'm supposed to psychoanalyzing the opposition, knowing that this is a game both sides can play, but here we have a case so palpable that one is tempted to make an exception. So many of these radicals seem to be persons of disordered personality. There is something suspicious about the impassioned altruism. They often seem to be struggling to cover up some deep inner lack by trying to reform the habits or institutions of people thousands of miles away. (laughs) I love that line. This is what they do, right? So you've got, let's just put this in something that I talk a lot about. You've got Confederate statues in, say, well, pick a state. Pick Georgia, right? You've got Confederate statues in Georgia. And you've got people in Massachusetts wanting to tear down down Confederate statues in Georgia, or people in Michigan, or people in California wanting to make sure those Confederate statues are gone because they hurt them somehow. Well, as we were saying, this is a mental illness. It's a mental illness. Something like this thus something like this becomes thus an obsession, almost to the point, or maybe to the point, of irrationality. True. It's an obsession. And you have these people running social media compounds the problem nowadays because there is a quote unquote national or international access for these things. Right? You get on Twitter, you get on Facebook, you create an account, you get followers from all over the place, and then you become this international or national star. And there are several people I could put in this, this uh, category who are always worrying about somebody else's doing somewhere else. This is the Puritan nature of all of this. Somebody somewhere is having fun, they have to stop. Somebody somewhere is doing something they don't like and they have to stop. Even if it doesn't affect them at all. How does it affect them? Not that I regard all desire to reform the world as a sign of being crazy. Even more than that, I would go along with Plato to say that some forms of craziness may be divinely inspired. But here we come to an essential distinction and a parting of the ways. There's a difference between trying to reform your fellow beings by the normal process of logical demonstration, appeal, and moral suasion. There's a difference between that and passing over to use of force or constraint. The former is something all of us engage in every day. The latter is what makes the modern radical dangerous and perhaps in a sense demented. His first thought now is to get control of the state to make all men equal or to make all men rich or failing that to make all men equally unhappy. True. Thus, this use of political instrumentality to to coerce people to conform with his dream in the face of their belief in a real order is our reason, I think, for objectifying, I'm sorry, for objecting to the radical. As an individual, he may think about molding the world to his heart's desire. He may even publish the results of his thinking. But when he tries to use the instrumentality of the states to bring about his wishes, then all of us are involved, and we have to take our stand. So there's nothing wrong with telling people, and this is what I think, but when they get involved and start to say the state needs to bring these things down or the state needs to do this to my will, that's when it becomes dangerous. That's when we have to object. The will has to bend. 
Here, as I see it, is where conservatives and libertarians can stand on common ground. A libertarian, if my impression is correct, is a person who is interested chiefly in freedom from. He is interested in setting sharp bounds to the authority of the state or other political forms over the individual. The right of the individual to an invaluable area of freedom as large as possible is thus his main concern. Libertarianism defined in this way is not as broad a philosophy as I conceive conservatism to be. It is narrow in purview and is essentially negative, but this negative aspect is its very virtue. It took the study of John C. Calhoun to wake me up to a realization that a constitution is and should be primarily a negative document. A constitution, and we may think primarily of the Constitution of the United States in this connection, is more to be revered for what it prohibits than for what it authorizes. A constitution is a series of thou shalt nots to the government, specifying the ways in which the liberties of individuals and of groups are not to be invaded. A constitution is a protection against that kind of arbitrary interference to which government it left to itself is prone. It is right, therefore, to revert to our constitution as a charter of liberties through its negative provisions, and it is no accident that in our day the friends of liberty have been pleaders for constitutional government. I think conservatives and libertarians stand together in being this kind of constitutionalist. Both want a settled code of freedom for the individual. Again, a very good summary of where libertarians and conservatives have a lot of common ground, right there. This is a shared political position, but we can show that their argument, I'm sorry, their agreement, excuse me, has a philosophical basis. Both of them believe that there is an order of things which will largely take care of itself if you leave it alone. There are operating laws in nature and in human nature which are best not interfered with, nor or not interfered with very much. If you try to change or suspend them by government fiat, the cost is greater than the return. The disorganization is expensive, the ensuing frustration painful. These laws are part of what I earlier referred to as the structure of reality. Just as there are certain conditions of efficiency for operations in the physical world, so there are conditions for efficient operation in the social and economic worlds. There's a concept expressed by some economists today in the world, fraxology. Fraxology, briefly defined, is the science of how things work because of their essential natures. We find this out not by consulting our wishes, but by observing them. For example, I believe it is a fraxological law that a seller will always try to get as much as he can for what he has to sell, and a buyer will always try to pay as little as he can to get it. That is a law so universal that we think of it as part of the order of things. Not only is this law a reliable index of human behavior, it also makes possible the free market economy, with its extremely important contribution to political freedom. The conservative and the libertarian agree that it is not only presumption, it is folly to try to interfere with the workings of fraxology. One makes use of it, yes, in the same way that a follower of Bacon makes use of nature by obeying her. The great difference is that one is recognizing the objective, one is recognizing the laws that regulate man's affairs. Since the conservative and libertarian believe that these cannot be wished away through the establishment of a utopia, they are both conservative, conservators of the real world. My instincts are libertarian, and I am sure that I would have never have joined an effort with the conservatives if I had not been convinced that they are the defenders of freedom today. This fact is so evident in the contemporary world that one can hardly need to point out examples of it. So, I mean, he's saying, look, Weaver is a a libertarian by instincts, but a conservative by fact, because he's saying these things are so tied together because of the negative nature of, say, the Constitution and because of the laws of nature, the laws of nature, 
they work. Or, more importantly, the laws that have been established through custom and precedent over hundreds of years. It requires only a little experience in politics or publishing for one to learn that the enemies of freedom today are the radicals and the militant liberals. Not only do they propose through their reforms to reconstruct and regiment us, they also propose to keep us from hearing the other side. This is written in 1960. 1960. He's saying these people are trying to stamp out the other side. Look what social media does. Run by leftists. You can't have this. You can't put this there. You can't see this. You can't read it. You can't watch it. You can't do these things. Reconstruct and regiment us. Lockdowns. Mandates. This is the left. This is the left. Anyone who has contended with Marxists and their first cousins, the totalitarian liberals, knows that they have no intention of giving the conservative alternative a chance to compete with their doctrines for popular acceptance. If by some accident they are compelled physically to listen, it is with indifference or a contempt because they really consider the matter a closed question that is no longer on the agenda of uh, discussable things. That's where Tom was the index of 3x5 index card of allowable opinion. This is what we were saying in 1960. 1960. 61 years ago. The conservative, on the other hand, is tolerant because he has something to tolerate from. Because he has, in a sense, squared himself with the structure of reality. Since his position does not depend upon fiat and wishfulness, he does not have to be nervously defensive about it. A new idea or an opposing idea is not going to topple his. He is accordingly a much fairer man, and I think a much more humane man, than his opposite, whom I have been characterizing. He doesn't feel that terrible need to exterminate the enemy, which seems to inflame so many radicals of both the past and the present. This can be shown by relating an incident from the career of George Washington, who figures in my mind as the archetypal American conservative, a man versed in the ways of the world but uncorrupted by them, a man whose unshakable realism saved our infant republic. Washington, for example, had the very ticklish job of maintaining relations with radical revolutionary France during both of his, both of his administrations. In 1793, the, there arrived in this country one citizen Genet, now minister of the French Republic, whose commission in reality whose commission it really was to stir up trouble. He tried to involve the United States in a new war with Great Britain, and he even threatened to appeal to the American people over the head of the, their government. He was the sharpest thorn in Washington's side for some while. But in the year 1794 came the fall of Genet's party, the Gironde, and the accession to power of Robespierre and his radical Jacobin government. Genet was replaced, and Washington was requested to send him back to France, where he undoubtedly would have faced the guillotine. But, and I quote here the words of a recent biographer, Washington would take no agency, even remote, in the bloody business of the French terror. Whatever Genet had done or tried to do, the president did not intend to order the young man to his, to his doom. If Genet wished, it was agreed he might have political asylum in America. So Genet became an American citizen and lived peacefully for 40 years in our conservative republic. This impresses me as a classical instance of conservative tolerance and essential humaneness. By thinking, but thinking back to this period may remind us that Washington was himself a revolutionist, and this, to my mind, refutes any notion that a conservative must be distinguished by timidity and apathy. When the time is out of joint, he can be an active exponent of change. The difference is that he does not have the inflamed zeal of his counterpart, the radical revolutionist who thinks that he must cut off the head of his opponents because he cannot be objective about his own frustrations. 
It is interesting to know, in taking leave of the subject, that Washington's farewell address was noticed by the London Times. What it had to say was this, quote, George Washington's address is the most complete comment upon English clubs and clubists, upon factions and parties, and factious partisans. The authority of this revolutionist type may be set up against the wild and wicked revolutions of Europe, if not as an altar against an altar at least as an altar against sacrilege. In conclusion, I maintain that the conservative in his proper character role and defend is a defender of liberty. He is such because he takes his stand on the real order of things and because he has a very modest estimate of man's ability to change that order through the conservative power of the state. Think about what he's saying here. He's dis- the conservative is the defender of liberty and because he takes his stand on the real order of things, He is prepared to tolerate diversity of life and opinion because he knows that not all things are of his making and that it is, his, it is right within reason to let each follow the law of his own being. A rigid equalitarianism is to, let, is to him unthinkable because his, he appreciates that truth so well expressed by the poet Blake, one law for the lion and the ox is oppression. One law for the lion and the ox is oppression. One-size-fits-all government, top-down unitary state, is oppression. This is why this essay is so good and why everyone should read Richard Weaver. I therefore can see nothing to keep him from joining hands with a libertarian who arrives at the same position by a different route, perhaps, but out of the same impulse to condemn arbitrary power. What a great essay, and it hits it so many fundamental things that we have to understand about libertarianism, conservatism, what they are. I mean, this is why I say American traditional. What Weaver is actually outlining here is an American traditional position. John C. Calhoun, George Washington, the founding generation, the the idea of of federalism, opposition to one-size-fits-all government. Now, of course, when you get down to the order of nature of things, the order of things, and you're going to maybe see some deviation on some things, but Understanding that human nature and economics, politics, these things are unchangeable. And what the left is trying to do is bulldoze them all. And they have to eliminate you to do it. Because they cannot tolerate dissent. They cannot tolerate something that is not on the list of acceptable things to think. Because that's a threat to them. Because somebody might hear it and think, oh, well, that sounds more logical than what you're saying. And then that destroys their power. Because they can't make their will the law at that point. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. Sorry I stumbled over some reading there at times. Um, but regardless, get this book in defense of tradition by Richard, Richard Weaver. You can still pick it up. Um, he wrote this in 1960. That essay in 1960, just fantastic. I'll see you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>